There are uh, two scriptures um, that I'll read today. Uh, first from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, and then Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So first of all, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And then also from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is risen. What does it mean to say indeed? What does that mean to say Christ is risen indeed? Is that a point of emphasis? Is that a point of saying to be true, to be certain? Absolutely. Is it that sense of confirmation, that strength that gives to it, that Christ is risen um, and gives it power? And it also means... What are we going to do about it? If it's true, if we believe it, are we going to live it? Peter Larson said this, despite our efforts to keep him out, God intrudes. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered the world through a door marked no entrance and he left through a door marked no exit. He breaks the mold. He shows us that there is victory indeed. There was a phrase that we probably have all used at some point or another. Most of us, I would guess. Uh, it was also popularized in by one of the airplanes that was destined to destroy many lives in the events of 9-11, where passengers intervened and took the plane down to save other lives. They gave up their own. 
And the phrase was, let's roll. Let's roll. It's a phrase used as a proclamation to move forward and proceed with an action, an attack, or a venture. It's used to tell another person or a group of people to start leaving a place or to start doing something. So when we talk about rising and rolling, to rise and roll, we're called to get up out of the tomb because it's time to roll. It's time to move forward. It's time to do something because of Christ and what he did and because he was risen, it made a difference. In Isaiah 60, 1 to 3, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. We're to rise and do something with it. If there's anything about, not just Easter, if there's anything about our faith that is noteworthy, it's that we aren't just called to get up in the morning. We're called to go do something. Anybody can wake up and lay there for a long period of time. Believe me, I know. (laughs) We all have, we've all hit that alarm snooze about 10 times and said, nah, not today. Not doing it, not getting up. Uh, Or we've at least felt that way, but got up anyway. We eventually, we get up, we go do something. We do the purpose of the day and we start the week and we start our lives for the next period of time doing what's on our agenda to do. Well, Jesus had an agenda. And so it wasn't just he wanted us to get up. It wasn't just that he wanted us to have the hope of eventually going to heaven after we die. He wants us to rise and now roll because he's got things for us to do. You know, this has been something all through scripture and I'm just gonna name very quickly, uh, move through a few examples of this. There was an invalid that was an invalid for 36 years and here he was at the pool of Bethesda, which, which is known as the place where you could get healing. And every so often the waters would be stir, stirred and there would be bubbling coming up. And those were the moments to go in. And every time, every time for years, he was, he was unable to get himself and lower himself down. Why? Because everybody would rush in ahead of him and, and take his place into the pool for healing. And we have that story of Jesus actually asking him, do you want to get well? Sir, he replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once he was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. He didn't even have to go into the pool. Jesus gave the word, told him to rise and go. Rise and roll with it. And we have that example. We have the example of the woman at the well 
who was, had this wonderful conversation with Jesus about water uh, that you would drink, that you would never thirst again. And this, you know the conversation well. And Jesus said to this woman, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Essentially, saying to this woman, now is the time. You don't have to wait any longer. Now is the time. And you know his confrontation with her um, about, uh, about what, what all has happened in her life. And she goes into the town and tells other people. And she didn't just stop and say, oh, thank you so much. I'm very grateful for you teaching me this. Now I'll go back to my life. No, she rolled with it. And she went back and she went and told people what, what all the Messiah had told about her and how he knew everything about her. And that this was a testimony that the Messiah had come. And when the Messiah comes into our lives, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. Or the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus said, as all of, he gave that test, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And eventually they all dropped their stones and walked away because none of them could claim that they were without sin. And then he said to her, where are your accusers? Where are they? There are none left. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't just say, well, it's all done. Now you don't have to worry. Just go back to your life. No. He clearly said to her, this is going to make a difference in your life. This is going to make a change. There is a new direction that I have for you. And that new direction is the calling and how the resurrection makes a difference in our lives. Levi, the tax collector, was one who was known as a cheat and somebody who abused his authority as a tax collector. And Jesus called him and said, today I'm coming to your house. And he said, uh, and he ended up uh, um, going and ha- hosting a party at his house for all these other, quote, sinners. And Jesus made a difference in Levi's life and in the direction of his life. And then you have the disciples. The disciples were just common people, fishermen, carpenters, all kinds of different trades. And Jesus called them. They dropped what they were doing and they answered the call and they were never the same. And then they didn't get it, and they didn't get it, and they didn't get it until they saw Jesus after the resurrection. 
And finally, all that he had taught them came back to them and it made sense to them. And Jesus gave them, before he ascended to heaven, the great commission. And what does the commission say? All authority, in, in this is Jesus speaking, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go, rise, accept the word of salvation, and then go and do something about it. Respond to it. Be a people who aren't just satisfied with the everyday, the ordinary, but are wanting to see change. You know, there's a lot of people that want to see change, but they don't really want to have to do anything or engage it. And there are people that sometimes think they can afford, and that goes so long until they realize they're still not happy. And then something happens. If there is no sense of direction, there is no sense of purpose. And... Um, and Jesus, uh, when he declared on the cross, see, many people misunderstand this. And we talked about this just briefly on, on, at the Good Friday service. Um, when Jesus said, it is finished, many people think that that was the ending of his life. No. It was the beginning of our commission. It was saying that not just his life, but the work that he was sent to do was completed in order that he would be able to take upon himself all of the sins that of our brokenness, of our imperfections, of our failures, and believe me, there are many. And he... He said it is finished because the mission that he was on was completed in his crucifixion. And then he gave up his last breath and died. And his resurrection is the symbol of the enabling for us to start again. That is what we would call our rebirth. Now, not many people think of that. That a grave is... These gravestones that are out here, for those that are of the faith, they are not symbols of an ending. They're symbols of a beginning. They're symbols of a victory. And we don't have to wait till we die to experience it. We can experience it now. By dying to ourselves and living for Christ, we're ready to go. That part is finished now the beginning of a new mission that we have in this world. And that's what he meant by that prayer. You know, um, Jesus, um, Jesus prayed for his disciples. And one of the things that he prayed, prayed in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in John uh, chapter 17 was, he said, my prayer is not for them alone meaning the disciples. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. That's, that was not only Jesus' mission, but he gave that mission to the disciples who gave that mission to the people they discipled who ended up giving to someone else who ended up giving it to us that we would be about the work of the kingdom of God. And we're called to be living sacrifices for God. And there is a verse in chapter 12 of Romans, a couple of verses that, that talk about what this means, what this transformation means. And, and then we'll get to this scene, go back to the scene of the text this morning. In Romans 12, 1 to 2, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Interesting. What he's referring to there is not that he wants you to offer your bodies to, to go to, to the cross necessarily, but whatever it takes to be willing to live for pleasing God, which he says, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper act of worship. Oh, you thought it was coming to church and singing a few songs, having a few prayers, hearing a, a message uh, from some short guy and, uh, and going home and having ha happy life. No, he's talking about this is your proper worship is to be a living sacrifice all the time. He says in verse two, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's the way, this transformation that we're called to experience. And when we, when we engage in that and recognize that it's a constant, a walk with Christ is a constant transformation of, of the death of myself, and the life being re-given to me through Christ and being resurrected through Christ. That's the whole healing of forgiveness is that we can be forgiven to start again and to start again and to start again. And that's the message we convey to people to say, look, it's been, it's been tough for many people. Uh, people have felt broken down and beat up by this world. What they need to know is they can begin anew in Christ, to be transformed. Uh, and so that's the way that we do God's, find God's good and pleasing and perfect will. The truth is there is no fulfillment and satisfaction in our lives outside of the will of God. And, and so that is our calling. So this transformation means that we are changed. It changes our purpose. It changes our direction. It changes the way we make decisions. It changes our vision and perspectives. It opens our eyes to a completely different realm spiritually when we make this decision to rise with Christ.
It changes our life vocation. Maybe not our job vocation, but our life vocation becomes more important than just our jobs. Our life vocation is to fulfill the commission God gave to us so that no matter where we are, here, across the country, across the world, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which school we're in or which community we live in. It matters that in our hearts and in our minds. And you'll notice that the passage that was read from Colossians talks about this. By the renewing of your hearts, by the renewing of your minds, we end up being able to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Notice one thing in this story now as we go back. Notice that Mary, you know, there was this scene. They thought it was a gardener standing there. And of course, they were upset, but then they had just seen an angel and talked to an angel. Who wouldn't be a little rattled by that? Hello? I mean, it's like, what just happened? And now there's this guy who is a gardener Uh, is standing there and talking to us and asks, why are you weeping? And, oh, if if he only knew, and am I going to sit there and tell him the entire story? And all of a sudden, she realizes it's Jesus, and he reveals himself to her, and she grabs a hold of his feet. Now, let's just think about this, because the classic, the classic thought is, I'm guessing you would, will wonder this. Why in John, this same parallel text, Jesus says, do not touch me. Some, one or two of the versions use the word not touch. Here in this passage, in Matthew, she clutches his feet is an act of worship is what it is. It's an act of bowing down. It's an act of complete and total worship of Jesus, her Savior. And she, of course, is incredibly happy because he's alive. But why in the John passage do you have a little different version of it? In this one, she doesn't, he doesn't tell her, don't, don't hold on to my feet or don't touch me. But what he does is he says, go. Go and tell the disciples. Go and tell the others. Go and tell the group. Go bring the good news to them that I've risen, just as I said. One of the reasons that some commentators say this is misunderstood is because the actual word used in the John passage is not don't touch me. It's more closely related to don't Cling to me. Don't hold on to me. Some versions say it that way. In other words, it wasn't that you wouldn't touch. Because if you look further in John, you notice that, that he actually invites doubting Thomas. Okay, you're not sure yet? Come, touch the nail prints in my hands. Touch my wounds. Who would want to touch somebody's wound? Jesus was, exa- was exaggerating it to say, 
really, seriously, you want to come and you want to actually touch it and make sure it's bloody and, and, and you can see the holes that, that were made, go ahead, touch, and go ahead. And, and this, he does use the term touch. Why? What's, what's this about? And I love what one commentator, more than one, have, have deduced from this is that Jesus is saying this, don't cling to my physical presence here on earth because I'm going to be going to heaven soon anyway and rejoin the Father. Don't hold on to me. Don't hold on to the things of this world. If you've ever collected anything, and I have, I've had a couple of hobbies where I've collected a few things. It's just a hobby. Don't hold on to it. And I keep thinking about that because I doubt, I doubt anybody's going to want those little hobby collections that are there. Some point they will be spread. Somebody will either buy them or they'll be spread out throughout the country. Maybe at some point they will be destroyed. Uh, and who's going to care about an old bicycle spokes worn baseball card? Who's going to care about that? Jesus is saying to Mary, Mary, don't hold on to me. Don't, don't hold on to the physical things of this world for your hope. Look beyond that. It's so much bigger. It's so much greater. There's so much more for you to do. Because if you hold on to me, what, what, think of it this way. Was it Jesus saying, hey, I really got to go because it's a long way to Galilee and it might take me a while to get there. Don't hold on to me because I got to go. It's like, no, he, he didn't have an issue. He could just go, kaboop, there he's there. That's all, that was it. Now she had a journey. She had to run, physically run back. But he's basically, that's not the point he's making. He's making the point that it's time to go and, and focus on the things of heaven. Focus on the things that I've taught you. Don't hold on to this world so much that you aren't able to go forth in the way of the cross. It moves us from the comfortable to the uncomfortable. It moves us from the safe to the risky. It moves us from the convenient to the difficult and worth the difficulty. It moves us from the known and controllable to the unknown, uncontrollable that God will guide and Jesus will be there all for the sake of the kingdom of heaven at work in Christ. You know, uh, in the classic spiritual journey, the allegory of the pilgrim's progress, John Bunyan paints a word picture of a man who only looked downward. This poor guy was on his knees in the dirt and filth, working constantly to try to unearth with a rake some kind of morsel which would enrich his life. Yet all the while a bright crown of immeasurable worth uh, was right above his head and uh, the man never looked up to see as he continued to try and gra gather fragments of, of straw or, or 
a coin or anything he could find. And he was so focused below that he never saw the riches of the crown being held over above him. That is a a wonderful picture we're given of that. Uh, Speaking of our head being down, one of the more underrated lines of the of the Easter story is is just the words very simply, go. So, rise and roll. Get going. There's so much to do. There's so much more for us. There is so much that we have to do. And we may not see it, and we may see, as Scripture says, as through a glass darkly, but we're going to go anyway. We may not exactly know where we're going. I have to tell you um, that this Paul Bunyan, or that Paul, the John Bunyan story uh, reminds me of, um, of something that just happened to me this past week. I was driving back. I left Lancaster at four o'clock in the afternoon I was warned about storms. People knew that I was driving, said there's storms coming across Ohio, there's storms coming across Pennsylvania, there were high winds. Um, One of the blessings that I didn't count on was that the cloud cover uh, enabled me to not have to look in and drive into the sun. I'm in into this trip. I navigated 70 mile an hour winds with the car. It was a rental car. I didn't know the car real well, but it was, they had upgraded me to a smaller SUV, which was very nice. Wonderful car had all the wonderful things. It warned me, it vibrated when I, I was down. They had to make this, you know, for, for Christians walking the faith in our rolling forward that there would be a vibration when we get close to the line, like move us back into the center. And this thing, you know, would go off. And it was a little annoying, but it certainly kept me on track, right? And so I get to Eastern Ohio. I'm into the trip four and a half hours. And, um, and I had noticed some miles back that somebody had been flashing their lights, but they were way back behind me. I didn't really think much about it. It was dark by this time. Um, It was so dark, and the glare off of some of the oncoming cars around some of those mountain curves, um, I was just about out of them toward Ohio, and uh, the glare was so bad that I actually put my visor down, even though it was dark, uh, because it helped me focus on the lines, the road lines a little better. And finally, I'm in Ohio, and another car behind me a little bit flashes their lights. And um, I'm like, what, what is this? What, why are people flashing their lights? I drive a car, as many of you do, where the lights turn on automatically. Here I realized I had never turned my headlights on four and a half hours into this trip and it was totally dark and for those of you that don't know I am blind in my left eye and uh, my vision in my right eye is very good 
Um, but um, I just simply flicked a little end of the switch, guessing as to where it might be, trying some different buttons. And suddenly the lights were like, whoa. I could have been driving with this the whole time. <laughs> now, that makes you feel pretty stupid. I'm guessing that all of the disciples at one point or another in this whole crucifixion process felt the same way. I imagine Peter felt, what, what is the deal with me? I denied my Savior. But that wasn't what mattered. What mattered was they remembered what Jesus had taught them and they turned the lights on and they rolled in building the church of Jesus Christ. And we're here today because of their work and God's faithfulness in all of our dimness and all of our inabilities and all of our failures and all of the things and yet we are still called on to roll in the mission that God has called us to. I hope that this Easter God is doing a work in you that says look I went through all of this to enable you to have life anew to be resurrected from all of the brokenness and the sin and all of the things that, that you've been through and to be able to go and have hope and the promise of my presence. He says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Because of that, we celebrate Easter in a powerful way. And how fitting for us to be able to take communion today. Uh, we're going to sing, invite the team to come up and lead us and lift your glad voices. Let's sing a response to this, that God's presence, his power, and his peace is always with us. And I want you to remember this. If Good Friday was about what Jesus did for us, Easter is about what we're going to do for Jesus in response. Amen? Amen. Amen.